Howdy, everyone. Today's a great day. It's a blessing to be able to come into God's Word. We live in an amazing era in history. We should take just a moment to stop and be thankful for that. I read a stat today that on average, every American household has nine Bibles. That's on average, and there are many, many households who do not. So believers have access to so many Bibles, so many translations, and now we have it digitally. We have apps on our phone. We have uh, YouTube videos with sharings about God's Word. We have podcasts. We have audio Bibles. We have such an access to God's Word that we didn't have it before. So I hope that in this age of such great access to this treasure, we don't take it for granted but instead just appreciate that we can come into really any passage of the Bible at any time we want and study it deeper and that God has a message for us in that passage. So today we'll be studying Hosea chapter 11 and I believe that the message God has for us in the passage today is that he is like a father who loves us as his children. So I hope that that message will encourage you to know what kind of a father that you have and also what kind of a child that you should be. So let us read from Hosea chapter 11. First, we will read verses 1 through 4. It starts like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Wow, what a beautiful passage there, uh, reminding us of our Father in heaven. And here he's specifically talking to Israel, that he's a father to them. Uh, but we know many other passages tell us that he will be a father to us as well if we believe in him, like John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we can be children of God too. So in this passage, God uses the image of a father caring for his child to describe his relationship with Israel. He says, when Israel was a child. So that points to the time when Israel was young as a nation. Uh, he talks about when he called them out of Egypt. So when they were just forming as a nation, actually he was forming them, he was establishing them, he called them out of Egypt. They were childlike in many ways. In some ways they were naive. They had not yet mingled with the other nations. They had not yet plunged into idolatry. And so God loved the nation of Israel like a father, his child. Now, this doesn't mean that when they grew up that he stopped loving them. Even earthly fathers very rarely stop loving their children when they grow up. But when they grew up, Israel did not really love him anymore. And so when they grew up, then they grew apart from God and they drifted away from him. So it says the more they were called, the more they went away. Uh, this is a very sad thing. Israel did not any longer reciprocate his love. Uh, before, at the beginning, you could imagine an analogy of a young child. When the father comes home from work and opens his arms, the child runs into his arms and, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so happy to see you back again. But when the child is older, a teenager, you know, becoming more cold, perhaps hostile, and then as a child grows up, totally drifting away, uh, it's, it's a sad thing. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way with your actual children or your parents. And it doesn't have to be that way for Israel either. But this is the route that they chose. 
So this loving relationship which they had, father, child, was messed up because the child was grown and wanted no part of that anymore. So they not only didn't follow God anymore, but they turned to idols as they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So this is a very sad thing. The more they were called, the more they went away. Uh, before I go there, I want to come back for a moment. I, I missed a point in verse 1. That is this phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is actually quoted by Matthew in Matthew 2.15. It says that this is when Jesus fled to Egypt. Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt with Jesus when he was a young child uh, to escape Herod. And then he came back from Egypt and it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoted from this verse in Hosea 11 verse 1. So when you read it in Hosea 11:1, 1, it doesn't appear to be a reference to the Messiah. It appears to be a reference to Israel as a nation when God brought them out in the time of the Exodus. So why does Matthew then quote it. Well, Matthew was being led by the inspiration of the Spirit, and he sees a parallel between these two events, and rightfully so. The Old Testament is filled with events and people which God uses to foreshadow his plan of salvation. And so there are many similarities we can find between Old Testament events and Jesus as the coming Messiah. So the Exodus points to a future time when God was actually going to call his son, Jesus, out from Egypt. Now, Israel was the one who received the covenant from God. They were the ones who had the Old Testament covenant with God. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to bring all the blessings which Abraham's descendant was to bring, right? Abraham's descendant was to bring the blessings to all the nations of the earth. We learn that in Genesis 12, verse 3. But they didn't do it. They fell short of their calling. They were not a light. They were actually... Yeah, kind of a repellent. They they were dark. They they disobeyed God. They worshipped idols. And so they didn't fulfill what God called them to do. But Jesus would come and Jesus would fulfill the whole Old Testament law. No one in Israel could, but Jesus did. He fulfilled the whole law and he fulfilled God's purpose for the nation by being a light to all the nations and bringing the Gentiles in. Uh, we see another verse in Isaiah uh, 49 verse 6 it says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth so Israel was supposed to be a light they didn't do it Jesus as God's servant as God's son he was a light and he did what they could not do so there's many things like this in the Old Testament that are a foreshadow of the Messiah and what he is going to do. All right, now moving forward again, the more they called, the more they went away. So they wanted uh, no part of this relationship with God. Uh, he called them with prophets. He sent them letters, letters of love, letters of warning, letters of grace, letters of judgment, all kinds of letters, uh, the Old Testament books, right, by the minor major prophets. They did not listen. Instead, they sometimes killed or abused the messengers. And so actually, instead of responding to his message and coming, it says the more he called, the more they went away. 
from time to time, you can see that happening with a parent and a child. Uh, the parent tells the child, come here. The child hears, but then the child runs the other way instead. It's that kind of rebellion. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't care what you say. You can see that sin nature in the heart of very young children oftentimes. And you can see it in the heart of Israel right now. I heard a, another story of a woman who was with her son in church service. The son was standing up on the on the pew and she told him, sit down. He didn't listen and sit down and didn't listen. And finally, sit down. And okay, he, he sat down. But then he looked at her with very tough eyes and he said, on the outside, I'm sitting, but on the inside, I'm still standing. And so his heart was not in it, even though the outer action was compliant. God cares about our heart. So the imagery here reminds us of the prodigal son. Like Israel, the son in that story hates the father, wants to get away, just wants to leave. The father is good to him always, but he's just bitter and resentful and he wants to leave. And so he runs away from his father's house of goodness and house of happiness that the father gives. And what does he find? Is he satisfied? Is he happy? Does he get what he dreams about? No. Where does it turn out? It turns out that he is feeding pigs in the field. That's what happens when we run away from God then our dreams don't come true. We find it's actually a nightmare instead. Verse 3, God says, Yet it was I who taught Abraham to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. Here's just a wonderful picture. A father reminiscing about the sweet childhood memories he has with a kind of like with a now rebellious teen. Oh, I long for the days when when I could hold my child and help him to walk and he loved me and he adored me. I hope this would never happen, that your kids would, would not be like that uh, when they grow up. I have two daughters and, and I do find that the younger they are, so, sometimes the, um, how to say, more heroic the father is in their mind. Uh, my daughter who is five years old will often come to me and just say, I love you, dad. I want to spend time with you, dad. Uh, when she said, I had a dream last night and you danced with me or I had a dream last night and you hugged me and this kind of very, very sweet behavior. And when I come home and she wants to be with me and spend time with me and that, well, I can say that my older kids, I have three older kids, so I have four kids total. They don't do that as much, especially the boys. It doesn't mean they, they don't love, but, it, but it's different. And so for some, when the kids grow up, they actually become more resentful and more bitter and more independent, but in a bad way sometimes, uh, hopefully in a good way sometimes. But, and so they want to run away from their parents and they're not interested in what their parents have to say anymore. And that's a sad thing. So that's what you see happening here in the book of Hosea. So it's not hard for us to understand this deep love and the affection the father has for his child. And the way that God in this passage is kind of remembering back on those days when they were sweet and wanted to have a relationship with him. Uh, but the bygone days, because they aren't happening anymore. So you can see God still loves them as he did before. His feelings haven't changed. You know, if the father's feelings had changed, he would mention the bad things, right? The sleepless nights, the whining tantrums, whatever. But here God is mentioning the good, the good memories. So like a faithful parent, God's love never grows cold. He wants the Jews to know 
Look, I still love you like a father. I've taken care of you all these years. If you will come back, right? I'm still here. Just like the father of the prodigal son. When the son came back on that road, the father saw him and ran out to him and he didn't rebuke him or scold him. He welcomed him back. He gave him the coat. He gave him the ring. He said, come in and feast. Now's a day of celebration. So he wants the Jews to know, if you come back, your relationship can be restored. Now, I find this phrase very interesting. It says, they did not know that I healed them. A child often does not have a full picture of what his parents do for him. Parents may toil for countless hours to provide for their children, and the kids know nothing about it. You know, kids just think that the food will automatically appear on the table. So they might come in after their day of playing outside and, where's the food? Where's dinner? You know, it's six o'clock. Where's the food? And they just think, oh, it'll, you know, it just appears. The kids don't think about rent or mortgage or taxes or vaccines or paperwork or tuition fees or, or anything. They don't really think about any of this stuff. They don't see the sleepless nights or the, the time put into prayer on their behalf. But parents do it anyway. Um, I'm not saying that in any way grudging kids. It's just the, the fact of, of life. When I was a kid, I didn't think about those things either. It's the job of parents to serve their kids. Parents should do that. Parents don't need to and, and shouldn't hold it over their kids' heads and always tell their kids, oh, I did all this for you and, and you know, you owe me. I heard a father did that. Uh, the, the son grew up and the son made some decision that the father didn't agree with. Actually, it was a decision to trust in Christ as the Savior. The father was a Buddhist and he didn't agree with that. And the father said, okay, you know, I don't agree with this decision that you've made, so therefore you have to pay me back every single cent I've ever spent on you. Uh, whether, you know, whether it's through education or through food, you have to pay it all back now. So parents shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't hold the things over our kids' heads. But we do need to realize, okay, kids, they, they don't recognize those things. They don't see those things. Those things do not enter into children's thoughts most of the time. It might be more likely to, you know, if the food is served and, and complain, oh, I don't like this dish, than to understand what really went into serving it. That's what we see with the Israelites here. They didn't know that God healed them. They didn't realize God's goodness. Okay, and they certainly weren't appreciative of it. They certainly didn't show gratitude toward it. So as we think about that, let's think about our relationship with God. We're not children in the sense that our, our, you know, our brains haven't fully developed and, and we have a limited knowledge. Like, like we have more knowledge and more understanding now. We should understand what God has done for us. We should be grateful for what God has done for us. And we should desire to have that sweet relationship with him again. Think back on when you first came to Christ. It's likely you're very excited. You're very zealous. You're probably very hungry to open the scriptures and to read it and to understand it. So as you grow up in your relationship with God, as you become more mature, don't take that for granted. Don't lose that zeal. That was a problem with the church at Ephesus that was mentioned in Revelation 3. Don't remember which verse exactly, but let me see. Um, sorry. It's a little bit farther back than I thought. Here are all of the churches. Going back to Ephesus. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't take it for granted, the relationship we have with God. We shouldn't abandon the love we had 
at first. Let us keep that fresh and strong in our life. So think, how can we be more grateful children towards our Heavenly Father? How can we be more grateful children towards our earthly parents? And, you know, think about our children. How would you like your children to show gratitude to you? And then you, if you have children, and then you can show that same gratitude to your Heavenly Father to remember the good things that He's done for you and to see those, to recognize them. Let's go forward. Verse 4, he says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. First, this part, I just love this part. I bent down to them and fed them. It's just such a vivid picture, almost uh, you know, a father bending down to feed his children. And even the fact that God bends down to us, such an amazing spiritual truth. Like God is so much higher than us so much different than us. The theological word is he's transcendent, which means he's totally, like he's very, very different than we are. He exists in his own, you know, time, space, quantum reality. His character is incomprehensible. His glory we cannot see, we cannot understand. If we were to see it, we would we would be dead because it's just that awesome. God doesn't, you know, God doesn't look at us and say, eh, you know, you're not worth my time. He bends down. He condescends. Okay, he wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't say, eh, I'm better than you, which he is. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm too, you know, I'm too holy, I'm too good, I'm not interested in you. He bends down, right? He wants to have a relationship with us. And he takes that initiative. That's a very beautiful thing. And then the other aspects of this verse are also really beautiful. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. So we see God's compassion and his gentleness toward us. He doesn't lead them as a slave driver with heavy chains of oppression, but rather with cords of kindness, bands of love. And he directs them. Now, what does that mean? We don't normally, we wouldn't, we wouldn't normally think of a cord or a band as something that, that's good. Like, okay, to be, to be tied up seems like a bad thing. So what does this mean? Well, it means that he directs us. He doesn't allow us to run free, right? There's some limitations. There's some boundaries there. But these are good limitations. They are good boundaries. He doesn't treat us as slaves with ill will, right? They're not chains. They're not tight. They're not harsh. They're not cutting into our skin. They don't leave a mark as prison chains would do. He leads us with kindness. Like, okay, I, I want to lead you and I want to direct you the right way, but I want to make that tool, that cord, as soft and as comfortable as possible, but still there has to be a limitation there. Now, this is very different than how Satan would do it. Because Satan's the opposite. God says there's a cord, there's a limitation, there's a boundary. Satan says there's no chain, no boundary, no limitation. He promises no chains. You can do whatever you want. You're free to live your life as you see fit. That's Satan's best selling point. You can do whatever you want. Satan would then also actually accuse God and say, see, God has a cord. God has a band. Okay? God wants to limit you. God wants to restrict you. But if you follow me, you won't have any. Now, the crazy thing is that the person who follows this licentious free lifestyle, so Satan says free, but when you go that way that promises freedom, actually you become chained to sin and you have very heavy, uh, burdensome chains on you. Ask a person who has lived his life in pursuit of alcohol or drugs or sex, how free they felt because they got into this thing free. I can do what I want. 
but then they will feel that those chains are not gentle, they are oppressive. So Satan promises the world freedom. The world promises freedom, but actually what it gives is chains. It's like the rat trap. Free cheese, you go for the cheese and whoosh, oops, I came into the trap. Now God is very, very different because God tells the truth. First of all, God says there is a cord, okay? There is a band, there is some limitation, but it's a good one. It's kindness and it is love, right? The restriction that I give you is for your good. Not everything is good. Not every freedom is good, right? And so God gives some restrictions for our good. You wouldn't give your child complete freedom, right? You wouldn't say, okay, yeah, just run across the street. You know, it doesn't matter. I don't have to be there. I don't have to hold your hand. Just, just you know, run across and you're free. You can go wherever you want. No. Uh, very likely, once your kids start to leave the house, when they get a bit older on their own, you probably give them a curfew, right? You give them a time. You, you know, you can leave, but come back by 8, come back by 9 p.m. You're restricting their freedom. Is that good? Yeah, it's good. Because if you don't, you say, oh, you know, just go and enjoy and come back whenever you want. Who knows what kind of mess they could get into, which could be very, very destructive for their lives. So some restrictions, some boundaries are good and healthy and necessary. We remember also Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he says, look, you're in chains. I will give you rest. But rest doesn't mean total freedom. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So come to me. It's not total freedom, but the yoke I put on you is light. Okay, it's easy. Why? Because the direction that you go, the direction that I'm leading you is the best direction for you. There's a verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you're going the right direction, then you feel light, easy, joyful, happy. Jesus said that his commands are not burdensome. He says, if you love me, you obey my commands and my commands are not burdensome. You will enjoy doing it. You will love doing it because it is the right thing. Amazing. Amazing when you think about it. So that passage is that Jesus said is very similar to this one. He says, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. So I want to ease your yoke. I want to make it as easy as possible. Yet at the same time, I still, Jesus, God's saying, I still want to lead you in the right direction because that is what is good for you. So the one following God's plan for his life will experience peace and joy in their conscience, which affirms rather than convicts. When you do the wrong thing, do you feel happy afterwards? I mean, it might give some temporary pleasure, but you probably feel guilty. You feel terrible. You feel it's creating wounds and it, it's hurting you. Your relationship with others, your relationship with God, you're being convicted from the inside out. But if you do what's right, you feel uplifted rather than being stuck in the mud of sin and of shame. So do not rebel and revolt against those cords the cords that God gives us are cords of kindness. The boundaries which he puts on us are for our good. Now, if you go back to the very first boundary or limitation God gave man, what was it? The Garden of Eden. He says, you can eat from any tree of the garden except for one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat from that. So first of all, you see that God wasn't very overly restrictive like they had 
almost total freedom. Like they could do one less than infinity things. It was just one thing they weren't allowed to do. So God wasn't being overly restrictive, but he did restrict them in one way, right? Now, Satan came along and said, that restriction isn't good. Um, God says you will die, but actually you won't die. And if you eat it, you'll become like God. So the very first temptation is Satan saying, you know, God is trying to restrict you. God is trying to keep you down. God's trying to take away your freedom. I'm offering you freedom, which is better. And it doesn't come with any consequences, except a good one. You'll be like God. So Eve believed, Adam followed. They threw off God's cords of kindness. What did they get? They got chains. They got chains. They did get consequences. They did die spiritually that day. They immediately, their eyes were opened. But they, they says their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked. So their mind had become kind of corrupted and twisted in some ways. They experienced evil in a much deeper way than ever before. They were kicked out of the garden. Their, one of their sons ended up killing another one of their sons. So sin came into the world. The very first animal uh, was killed because of them to make clothing for them. Um, God himself killed the animal and put clothing on uh, their, their body to cover up their sin. So all of this bad stuff happened because they believed the lie from Satan that, that he was promising freedom. They believed that and it led them and this world into chains and into bondage. So don't believe those lies from the world. Instead, accept graciously God's cords of kindness and his bands of love because it's good for you. And uh, yeah, he loves you and he wants what's best for you. So just believe him and take him at his word and then you'll see the good consequences from that. All right, we're going to go forward. Verses 5 through 9, we see God's compassion and his justice. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. All right, we'll go over that verse by verse. First, they shall not return to the land of Egypt because they've refused, okay, they've refused to return to me. So God, we see him as a father. He pours out his love, his tender care on his people as a father would his child. But they're petulant, they're ungrateful. They spurn his care and they say, mm, you know, they, they go after the Baals. They go after the idols instead. What's the application? God is always ready to forgive us and to restore us, but we have to come to him, right? There's a condition, come. Many, many, many times in the Bible it says, come, come. Like I'm here, I'm waiting, I'm ready. I'll give you the forgiveness, but you have to come. You have to take that action if you want to receive that forgiveness and that blessing from me. So don't harden your hearts. Don't be stubborn. Don't keep going your own way. Throw yourself upon God's mercy. What's the result if they're not? coming 
Well, it says Assyria shall be their king, but they they were not Assyrian, so they would not want Assyria to be their king. It means you will be captive. You have a new master. You have a harsh master. And actually, Assyria was very harsh, very capricious, very ruthless, very cruel. So their repeated rebellion was going to bring punishment down on themselves. And God allowed it to happen. Uh, God is actually disciplining them. God is using these other nations like Assyria as his tool to discipline his people. That is the result. And, and it's not because God delights to do that, but yeah, he's a, he's a reluctant judge. And so we see in verse 8, we see that God is a reluctant judge. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? And by the way, those are two towns which were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's saying, how can I judge you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So we often see that God is a God who is just. He judges and he disciplines, and that's true. Here we get a behind-the-scenes look. How does he feel when he has to judge? What we see is that he is a reluctant judge he doesn't enjoy it he doesn't want to do it it's only the last resort he keeps begging them throughout so many scriptures begging them come back return return to me i'll return to you seek salvation in the day when it is near and he, he tells them again and again but they don't listen so he realizes i don't want to but i'm going to have to discipline you as a judge because god has different hats different roles he's a father loving father but he's also a judge the father should be able to understand that. I have four children. I've had to discipline them many times. I, I do not enjoy it. It's my least favorite job of being a father. And it's a sad thing to have to do it. I would take it for them many times if it would help. But it wouldn't necessarily help for me to always take it for them. Of course, we know that Jesus finally took the punishment for us. A little bit of a different situation. That's the, that's, this is the picture, though, we see of God in these verses. Ephraim is like his child. He doesn't want to punish but they left him with no choice to really get their attention and to wake them up from their spiritual lethargy. He needs to discipline them. Doesn't want to, doesn't like to. So remember that. If you experience God's discipline, remember he doesn't want to. And if you will come and if you will repent, then you will find a very welcoming and gracious Lord. So how did you feel when you had to discipline your children? I don't think you felt good if you have children. But that can help you to feel how God how God does when he has to discipline us. So verses 9 and forward, we see some reference to the final restoration of the Jewish nation. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. And then reading on in verse 10, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come. Here we see that word, come. Finally they will come. He roars and they will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So we see in verses 9 through 10, okay, finally, he's going to bring them back. Finally, there will be restoration. There are many other verses in Scripture about that. 
And I'll just look at two. Amos 9, 14 through 15. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And another in Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered. I'll give you the land of Israel. There's many promises littering the prophets uh, about God is going to bring them back. God is going to restore them. So at the time of this writing, they were going away from the Lord, right? He called and they went away. We saw that earlier in this passage. But eventually it says they shall go after the Lord. One day they would return to him. One day they would pursue him. When that happens, as he will roar like a lion and then his children shall come trembling. That's uh, an amazing sight. It's like, come, this loud roar, this trumpet call, this shout throughout all the earth. Come. Receive your inheritance. Come back and be restored. A beautiful thing. Uh, it says here that they will come from the west. So this is not only a reference to Assyria or to Egypt. Um, Assyria and Babylon were not from the west, although Egypt was. Come from the west. There's a lot of lands to the west. Uh, and even if you go to keep going to North America, South America, it's still West, whereas Babylon and Assyria, again, were not from the West. But verse 11 also mentions Egypt and Assyria. So basically from all the lands. Now we know Israel has been scattered throughout all the world. There have been Israelites, Jewish people living in many, many, many countries around the world. Even now, I believe it's roughly half-half. Half have returned to uh, the land of Israel and about half are living around the world. Uh, For those who don't know, I live in China, and there was even a large population of Jewish people in China for a long time, and even recently, some descendants from that Jewish population, although they they look Chinese, they recognize their Jewish heritage, and some of them have returned uh, after several generations ago, their parents came, they've returned to the land of Israel. So this regathering is, is taking place like the first fruits of it, or to some extent now, but not the final one yet. There are still many Jews scattered throughout the world. And I believe that scripture teaches that one day uh, Israel will gather back again. There will be a final restoration of God's people. Uh, if you want to know more on that, you can read the study on the book of Revelation, which I have shared, especially the part on the 144,000 witnesses. I do believe in the end times, uh, God is going to work in the nation of Israel And God is going to fulfill every single promise he ever made to the nation of Israel. And they will come back again. And that would be a glorious sight that the people who, you know, rebelled for a long time and they rejected the Messiah that he sent will one day come back to him. And and he is, he's faithful and his promises do not fail. And even though it's been hundreds or thousands of years since these things are said, that still his promises are there and will not be broken and will be fulfilled. And he will restore his people. He's like the father who loves his child. And no matter how many years has passed, he still wants his child to come back. And God's children, the nation of Israel, um, 
will one day. And that's a very, very encouraging thing as we remember God is faithful and he's true in all of his promises which he ever makes in our life as well uh, will come true no matter how much time has passed. Uh, there's another verse on that. There's many verses, but I'll look at Isaiah 11, 11, and 12. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Still going to happen. His promises will come true. So we see that they will come trembling, like on one side, okay, they're they're eager to finally come and to have those promises fulfilled, but there's also some healthy fear and reverence, knowing the history there. Uh, we also see the Ephraim is contrasted with Judah. Um, Ephraim was basically totally sold out to idols for a long time already. Its kings were universally evil. The prophets were almost all false, and his people followed their leaders to do evil. But Judah says Judah still walks with God. Obviously, they were not perfect, but many of Judah's kings were righteous, and many of the people served God faithfully. So, as we finish with that, we are reminded you can choose which group to be in. You can choose to be in a group that follows God. Uh, you can choose to come to him. As, a, as his child to receive his love and to value that loving relationship that he has with you as a father and as a child, you can receive that. You can receive the blessings. But that would mean that you have to take on these cords of kindness and these uh, bonds of love. You need to accept the limitations that God gives. To be his disciple means that you need to follow him. A Christian is a follower of Christ. And Christ gives certain uh expectations that we should behave in a certain way so we have to take those on but realize those are good for us and if we go the way of the world which says you can be totally free you take on something way 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 worse which is the terrible and thick chains uh, which you cannot break on your own so we can choose which way to go we should not follow a crowd to do evil just because the world is all doing it we shouldn't do it uh, if we choose the momentary pleasures of sin this will bring about bondage and punishment. So today, let us just take a moment and appreciate what a loving father we have, that he values this relationship with us, that he bends down to feed us, that he cares for us, he helps us to walk, he holds us, he hugs us, he teaches us everything that we need to know, he provides for us everything we need, and his love is perfect and is unconditional and never fades in his promises he will be faithful to carry out every single one of them that he's ever made to us so just take a moment and appreciate that and ask him what he would like you to do in order to be a grateful and obedient child to him so I hope this passage in hosea chapter 11 has encouraged you and i would invite you to join us next time by God's grace, we'll be studying Hosea chapter 11. I would also invite you to like and subscribe. That is a simple way to support the message of this channel. Uh, when you do that, then it helps that content be seen by even more people. So I hope that you would do that, and I look forward to seeing you next time as we study Hosea 12. God bless, and see you then. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.